Hello and welcome to this celebration of movie excellence in 2024. I'm Alex Zane and in Countdown to the BAFTAs we speak to the producers behind those films nominated for Best Film at the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024. This time, it's Killers of the Flower Moon. In this wide-ranging interview, we discuss how they got from the creative spark that started it all to the challenges faced in bringing it to the screen. And a quick warning, we will be talking about the story, so if you haven't yet, go see the movie, come back and get listening. This is Countdown to the BAFTAs. These are stahe, are murdering us. In the case of Anna Brown, her family here on the west side have raised funds with an amount of about $2,000 to $5,000 for the arrest and conviction of the murderer. Set in 1920s Oklahoma, Killers of the Flower Moon is based on a true story depicting crimes against the Osage people, a Native American tribe who strike oil. The actions of William Hale, played by Robert De Niro, and his nephew Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, result in an intervention by the federal government. My name's Daniel Luthby and I was the producer on Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, Daniel, wonderful uh, to be able to talk to you about Killers of the Flower Moon. First of all, uh, let me start by saying congratulations. How does it feel to have your film be recognised by the BAFTA members? Amazing, especially in the company of films we're in. I mean, it's, it's, it's a competitive year. It is a competitive year. It's a, a great selection of films, of which yours is clearly one of them. Um, I'd like to take you back to the very beginning of your journey with this film. If you can tell me, when you when you first became part of Killers of the Flower Moon and at what stage the project was at when you joined? I'd heard about the project, you know, just around, because it was obviously such a great piece when you think of the book and, and how Marty Scorsese was involved and they were making this movie. And then what happened is in the summer of, 2020, I got a call and I knew uh, that the film had been at Paramount the previous year and that winter it had collapsed due to a change in direction with the script. And what I heard was at the time was that Paramount, you know, basically, I don't know about got the word cold feet because obviously they stayed in on the project and ended up releasing it theatrically but production stopped that christmas while they rewrote the script uh and i became involved where it actually was heading towards apple apple had come on the scene making films and this actually was their first uh solely produced apple film and so i came in in the summer i met with the uh, producers it was the height of COVID. And basically, we had to come up with a plan with Marty to basically re-budget the movie, reschedule the movie, and hopefully start shooting it in the early spring of 21. So talk, talk me through this, this moment you joined, because I, I, think, um, I think the rewrite you're talking about, which I, I can only imagine is, is quite a sea change in a film, is where Leonardo DiCaprio changes from playing the FBI agent Tom White and decides I'm going to play Ernest Burkhart. So Correct. I can only imagine that for a production 
that's a huge difference and that must have a massive knock-on effect to the, the whole schedule of the film, which is what you were picking up when you joined. In that summer, basically, I was working with Marty, who was writing the script with Eric Roth, the new version. And I worked with Adam Sumner, who I'd worked with a lot, who was an amazing AD, who was also an EP on the film. And basically, we, we rescheduled the movie where Leo was playing Ernest Burkhart. And so, I'll be honest with you, I never read the old draft where where he played the FBI guy. So I always only knew Leo playing Ernest. So I came on. At that point, Marty had been to Oklahoma many times and had met with the Osage. So in other words, we were always going to Pahuska, Oklahoma, to shoot the film. So working with him, the AD, we came up with a new schedule. You know, Ellen Lewis was casting with Renee Hayes. And obviously, you know, Marty was very concerned that all the indigenous roles need to be played by indigenous people. And so, you know, there was extensive casting happening in Oklahoma. And then they were looking in Canada and basically all of the United States to, to fill these roles. Two, one. Mr. President, Molly Burkhart. Please send help. There's murder in Osage, and the police do nothing. I lost my mother and my sisters. So many Osage are killed for the oil money, please. I think when I became involved, Molly had already been cast. It was, it was Lily Gladstone. As you said, this, this was always the case. Martin Scorsese, it was very, very keen to not only shoot on the ground in Oklahoma, in Osage County, but mm -hmm. also um, he wanted to meet with the, the Osage community and and discuss the film. And when you're actually on the ground there shooting, how much of the film evolved because of those conversations that were taking place? Marty, basically, I'd never worked with him before, but it was incredibly important that we got the historical facts correct. So there's a lady called Marianne Bauer, who works with Marty in terms of his research. And they had huge amounts of research in terms of meeting with the elders, meeting with the, the Osage nation, you know, people in terms of language and costume and props and everything. It was, it was like a meticulous amount of detail needed. Now, also, when I came on board, there was a change in production designer and I'd worked with Jack Fisk, who had done There Will Be Blood and done, you know, the Terence Malick films. And basically Jack came on board as the new production designer. And Jack is like a forensic production designer. He literally <laughs> goes and looks at the death records and looks at the old property records. And he basically immersed himself back in 1920. And so there was that going on at the same time. Actually, I think we changed costume designer as well. There was a lot of research going on that summer while we were coming up with a plan and also budgeting the movie. So obviously all those people are involved. You've worked as a producer and a line producer on some 
huge productions. You've worked on Spielberg's Lincoln and West Side Story, as you mentioned, all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. So you are perfectly placed to tell us just how big of an undertaking it was getting Killers of the Flower Moon to screen. It was probably, and I'm not joking, I mean, it's, I've done about 30 movies. It was probably the hardest movie I've ever done. And, and the reason wow. it was hard is because, I mean, COVID was crazy at that time because we literally had, you know, some older members of The Crow. We had some older cast. So COVID was a huge concern. Having Apple as a producing partner was massive because basically working with David Rubin, who was their head of production, they were working with a company called CTH and we had to take our own labs to Oklahoma to be on site so that we could test, you know, we were in the whole testing process and we ended up doing about 75,000 tests on the movie. And so basically we had a lab outside two of them and literally for you to go and meet with people, you had to be tested on a, you know, two or three times a week. I mean, that was a, that was an undertaking, which is like making a movie in itself. It was incredibly hard because we also, when we were prepping the movie early, we wanted to involve the Osage. So, you know, in terms of construction and, and set dressing and, costumes so there was a lot of outreach into the community to find artisans that would be able to work with our film crew to bring the film to life so it, it was very complicated the film to watch the film you, you you really the scenery the vistas the the landscape of oklahoma that martin scorsese has captured on film which is very much part of this story and you can't imagine it being filmed anywhere else for you arriving there and, and seeing where you were going to shoot and the fact that that was going to be the location what was that experience like for you well visually and creatively it was as you pointed out it was the only place you could make the movie i mean in other words we had about eight to ten thousand extra days involving osage background and obviously there were non-Osage, white background mixed in. It was amazing. I mean, you, you know, you landed in Tulsa, you drove about two hours north heading towards Kansas, and you ended up in Pahuska, which is their, their center. Now, actually, the movie's based in Fairfax, which we didn't, we shot a lot in, but the main town sequence we shot in Pahuska because the previous year, Marcy had decided that the the main street of Pahuska works cinematically better to recreate Fairfax of 1920. Mm. And so, you know, we show up in Pahuska. Obviously, the Osage Nation is completely supporting what we're doing. And so we're liaising. There's a lot of, actually, at that time, there was a lot of sort of empty buildings on that main street that you see in the movie. And so working with the, the town, the Osage, the non-Osage, we basically had to contact, you know, every owner of every building of that street and completely transform it into 1920s Pahuska, which is playing for Fairfax. The nearest hotels were in Bartlesville, which is an hour from Pahuska. 
you know, and it's it's so logistically it was it was a very complicated movie to <laughs> shoot it at that place. The weather would drive me crazy. You know, we we're all looking at a map and looking at lightning as it comes down from Kansas, and we literally got into a five-hour lightning storm, which I've never seen in my life. And if people, the audience, don't know, when lightning is within six miles of a film set, you have to shut down. And you basically have to wait X number of minutes before the lightning passes, and then you can resume filming. And so, on this particular film, there was lightning coming in every other week, and it it would cause havoc. So it was challenge after challenge on this film. All the the development, the pre-production challenges were overcome. The movie begins shooting. Do, do you remember? Were you there on, on the first day when Marty called action? Yes, we shot the uh, sequence where Henry Rowan gets killed in the car with the bootlegger. You know, and Marty is a, again, I've, I've never worked with him before, but he is, when he comes to set, he is totally prepared. It is all about the work. You know, the set is completely quiet or as quiet as you can make it. It's a very focused set. And I think the idea that we were, in the middle of Oklahoma, which was somewhat remote, it brought a huge focus. Basically, the movie was all you did from March through September. You know, I mean, it's not like you're going to go somewhere. <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was interesting seeing him work. Obviously, you know, Leo had worked with him many times before. Bob De Niro, you know, we also had a, an issue where Bob actually ended up hurting his knee two weeks into shooting and we had to stop for a week or two and then we had to reschedule while Bob's knee fixed and Lily obviously I mean going back to the cast you know when they arrived in Oklahoma Lily and Leo and and all the cast worked with the ancestors and the families of actually the people who are depicted in the movie so it was pretty intense like I, I going back to the first day of shooting i remember actually the osage came and blessed the first day so the chief came with the elders and there was a prayer and it was all quite moving i mean the thing we all have to remember is obviously the subject matter is incredibly dark what has come to our reservation that doesn't belong here and it's dim Mm. They're mm. like buzzards circling our people. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna pick us body clean. Yeah. Mm. Leave nothing. You know, there's respect that Marty, the cast, the crew had where we were dealing with this reign of terror. You know, our set was pretty open to the Osage. So they would come and visit and they would spend time with Marty and the cast and they would see us shoot. We should mention that this is obviously based on David Grant's non-fiction yeah. uh, book, also called The Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Am I right in thinking that until this book came out and then subsequently the film, this was almost entirely unknown to most of the American population, let alone anyone else? Correct. I think there was a period of time where this wasn't kind of openly discussed and then I think David's book brought it to light. And I think the Osage community were willing to talk about it publicly. You were talking about watching um, 
this incredible cast work, Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio as the, the couple, Molly and Ernest. Now, there was a script, um, but how much were they encouraged to improvise? I think there's a, a famous uh, moment, which is their, their first real meeting in the car. That was, a, that was an ad lib, was it? Yes. What was that? That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> the great thing about Marty is, is I think he is open to listening. You know, some films you work on, there's a script and no one's willing to change it by a word. But I think with Marty, it's this sort of organic process that he goes through. But I know that there were um, things in the script which Molly brought. Like, I know the scene outside the church where they talk about, they're talking about the men. That was something that Lily and the other cast, it was an idea of theirs. And I think even Coyote, I think, also came from Lily. There's a funny story doing the rounds. I wonder if you can and confirm uh, if it is true or not. But in the Masonic scene um, where Rob De Niro's character, William Hale, punishes Ernest with a, a paddle, um, apparently Robert De Niro actually broke the paddle on Leonardo DiCaprio's behind in that scene with hitting him so hard. Is, 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 is there any truth in that? I think it did break. I mean, yeah, no, the other thing which is fascinating is that Masonic Hall, that is the real Masonic Hall from 1920. And when we scouted it, so Jack Fisk basically, you know, went and um, originally, I think a lot of the locations were going to be closer to Bartlesville, which was, I was telling you where all the hotels were. And Bartlesville yeah. is an hour from Pasca, which is nearly two hours from Fairfax. So Jack, basically, the film itself takes place in Fairfax, which is near Greyhorse. You know, Greyhorse is the, is the Osage where it community. And what's fascinating is that Masonic Hall, which was upstairs, it actually was, was down the hall from the Shones office that you see where the two doctors work. So that yes. doctor's office is the doctor's office from 1920. You know, it's this, this kind of like abandoned building. And those offices were the Shones offices. The Masonic Hall, when you scouted it, along the wall were photographs. Pitts Beatty, who's in the script, which is the guy that you, where you meet Molly at the beginning. You know, I'm incompetent and you're spending how much money on meat. His photo was on the wall. The real... Pitts Biddy from 1920 <laughs> was still wow. there on the wall. So, you know, you felt like you were, you were back in time. In terms of that immersion and uh, being very, very immersed, both on set, but also as a viewer, as an audience member, you are immersed in this world, in this time period. You mentioned uh, Jack Fisk, uh, your production designer, and the amount of things... He had to source vintage cars, uh, an, an actual steam train. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you've mentioned Apple's backing and being able to support this. Was there anything that you had to pull back on? Was there something that just wasn't feasible to include in the film that, unfortunately, you had to omit? I mean, the steam train, like, you know, that whole station sequence, we laid the mm. track 
we built the station, we brought the train in. So that didn't exist. So that, that train station was in the right location in Bahaska, but we literally, we brought that all in. Because if you do the math yourself, you can rent a car for run of show for $6,000, right? Or mm -hmm. you can pay $500 a day to rent a car. So I ended up renting a hundred cars at $6,000 a car, because what we did was we then kept them for the whole of the production and we would continually recirculate them, right? So we had a hundred yeah. cars and we would move them all around the different locations. So that's how we dealt with the cars. For horses, we ended up with a Oklahoma horse wrangler who basically came with about, you know, we had about 40 horses and carts. So that's how we dealt with the cars and the horses. So that the horses lived at a stable, like a large ranch. And so that's how we did that. But I think the one thing which I remember Marty wanted, which didn't make the film, was there was a whole scene with a biplane, a period 1920s aeroplane. That was one of the few things that he didn't do, but what he ended up doing was using that real stock footage, you know, that black and white footage at the beginning. At that time, to shoot film was incredibly expensive, you know, to, to have a camera back in the 20s. And there's all this amazing home movie footage that the Osage were able to have, which we, we looked at. And then basically Marty working with Rodrigo, we ended up shooting... 90% of that stock footage we shot, but the scene with the aeroplane where you see the Osage man and the aeroplane at the very beginning in that black and white, yep. that's actually real stock footage from a Osage home movie. So we never rented a plane. I, so Marty didn't get a plane. I did wonder about that footage because it looks so clean and crystal clear. I, didn't, yes. I wasn't sure if it was. That's no, been that's cleaned real. up, I imagine. Yes, that's real. Exactly. But all the like rodeo and the people with the jewels and the cars and the playing the golf and the archery that we, we filmed it with a hand cranked, uh, Bellenhauser. I mean, Marty had a, a old hand crank camera, which we ended up ref refurbing and that's how we shot all that footage. Also just talking about the film, we did shoot it on film. So 98% of the movie was shot on film. And then we did a little bit of digital on some of the night work, which Rodrigo Prieta obviously worked extensively in prep. And so you've got a finished first cut of uh, the, the film. Um, you often hear stories about the, the first cut. I mean, obviously, this movie is um, famously people talk about it's three and a half hours long. Um, was the first cut even longer? Was there a longer cut? Just so you know, it's three hours 19. Sorry, you're absolutely no, right. Three hours, wanted... 19 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing that lazy thing of just like every, it's three and a half hours. You're absolutely right. It's three hours, 19 minutes. Was there initial? <laughs> right. And actually I heard, this is just a story that Oppenheimer would have been longer, but IMAX is only able to sh uh, project movies of three hours. So maybe we'd have had two movies of similar length. Don't know. But anyway, so the post process. So we, so we went into post 
in October of 21. And look, with all filmmakers, we basically edited until the release date. We were in post for probably, I don't know, 60 odd weeks. So in that process, Marty with Thelma, Thelma obviously was there during, well, she actually, she was in New York because of COVID and we would send dailies and, and Marty would watch the dailies with Thelma at weekends via an app. Do you know what I mean? So they would be live watching the dailies. But, you know, he works through the cut and it's an organic process. Mm. So when you say, was there a longer version? Yes, but then I'd say there's a longer version on, honestly, on every film. Marcy eventually yes. got it to a point where he was happy. And in that process, I mean, Martin Scorsese is obviously a, a, a very singular talent as a director. You you hear about movies going through test screenings and test audiences giving scores and, and that influencing decisions that are made on the edit of the film. Was that part of the process for Killers of the Flower Moon? No, but I do want to just put it in perspective. Paul Thomas yeah. Anderson, final cut. No test screenings. Steven Spielberg, similar, final cut. You know, it's, it's, it's his version that, that he will show. So Marty was similar, where he has final cut. Now, you know, he, he shows the movies to friends and family. You know, he gets feedback, he listens to it, to people he trusts. Yeah. So through the post process, I would say we got to a certain point of the movie. He showed it to Apple. I'm not going to lie people would be like, oh, it's three hours and 20 minutes. And, you know, people would be like, oh, can't it be shorter? And then Marty would have meetings with them. And, you know, there were changes made. I mean, Leo got, obviously sees the movie and is very involved in the process. Apple saw the movie, gave their notes. I think the final one was where Marty showed it to the elders of the Osage which obviously we were somewhat nervous about because no one had ever, they'd never seen the movie. This was like a year later, right after leaving Oklahoma. So the elders came up to New York. Also, Marcy would only show the movie projected in a large theater. So there were no like cuts of a movie floating around watching on your TV. You'd have to come to New York if you wanted to see the movie and he would show it to you in a big theatre. And also the, the communal experience of sharing it with a, a packed auditorium of, of other people going on that journey as a yes. crowd. Well, actually, going back to Apple, that's part of the reason why Rick Yorn and Marty went to Apple. Because originally, you know, The Irishman was with Netflix, which I know they had a great experience, but obviously it's a very short theatrical window. And Marty with this one was like, it has to get a proper theatrical rollout. And that's why Apple came in and then, then they got Paramount to do a theatrical release. But I'm just saying that that theatrical experience, especially mm -hmm. on this film, right? There's certain movies you'll watch and you'll be like, I mean, most movies are better in the cinema, aren't they? I mean, I, I, I agree <laughs> and I think so, yes. Yes, yes I, I, I would agree <laughs> with you on that. Um, but let's talk about your personal experience. The first time you as the producer got to watch this movie with uh, a crowd. What was that situation? Where were you? And how are you feeling in that moment with a, a crowd seeing your film for the first time? You know, it's interesting. When I see a movie the first time, 
I'm like, oh my God, look, there's the steam train that cost me X. There's the whatever, you know. So, <laughs> so actually, it's probably the second or third time where I get to actually watch the movie and really yeah. watch it. I mean, people were blown away. Look, it's an epic movie. As I said to you, the, the amazing films that are up for the award season, when you think of all of them, probably Oppenheimer is probably the other large production. I mean, Zone of Interest, don't get me wrong, is large in its own way, but obviously in a limited production scale. Mm. You know, Thelma works incredibly close with Marty. She goes to every screening. She's involved. They, they both, you know, obviously, as the post went on, there were changes, there were ideas, there were things they did, which then they went back to, you know, you ended up with what you see today. I mean, the sound, you know, was all done in New York. He used his sound team that he'd done his films going back to, you know, his through his whole New York career. Um, the score. So Robbie Robertson, we should just talk about that because obviously it's incredibly sad, obviously, that Robbie passed away and who was an incredibly close friend and work, you know, creative force with Marty. Um, so Robbie, while we were shooting the movie, Robbie came out to Oklahoma. He, he did sessions with the Osage. Robbie is, I don't know if you know this, but is of indigenous background. He's from a Northern tribe. And obviously this film was incredibly close to him because he got to, you know, go back to doing something close to his, to his upbringing, you know, to his, to his cultural past. And so with the music, you know, Marty has this thing where Robbie would, was working in LA. He would send music to Marty and Thelma. They would, they would listen to it. And then, you know, obviously Robbie had seen the film and they would get to place the music. I mean, I mean, that process is, is truly unique. How Marty worked with Robbie. It's not the usual one where you go, you know, normally you'd cut the movie, you'd, you'd screen it and then they would score it in a studio where you'd watch the whole movie and they'd run the score, the whole score. In this case, it was more like Robbie would send music. And so, you know, eventually, yes, we re-recorded the music, but, it was far more organic. Daniel, I'm, a, I'm aware we are uh, nearing the end of our conversation, but I would like to ask you um, some slightly more quick-fire, yeah. big questions to Fine. end on. And uh, the first of my big questions is, can you remember your favourite day on this production, either on set or in the edit? What was a day that sticks in your memory as one of your favourite days on this film? Probably, again... Because of COVID, you know, there used to be lots of Zoom sessions where I would Zoom with Marty and the creative team. And I remember my wife sometimes would come in the background, who I've worked with for years as a producer, and she'd be like, oh, my God, Martin Scorsese <laughs> is on that Zoom talking to you. I think it was, honestly, it was the collaboration with Marty. I think that was definitely, I mean, it's like working with Steven Spielberg or PTA. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a dream to work with these people. So honestly, mm. the whole process, kind of. I mean, I, I could tell you some bad days, but I 
<laughs> yeah, that's weirdly, that's my next question. Yeah, you're, you're already there. But what was, in your mind, your toughest day, your worst day on this production? There's many. Getting a phone call that Bob had hurt his knee and we had to shut down, you know, a couple of weeks in. I don't think they were awful. It was, it was kind of like a team effort. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't call them awful. This sort of maybe leads on to this question. What do you consider the toughest part of a producer's job? You know, obviously we want to give the director everything they want. Sometimes they can't have what they want, either to do with money, logistics, or just, you know, it just can't happen. Um, I think it's that, that balancing act where I feel like you're dealing with a studio, which are obviously paying for the movie. And so you're trying to be as responsible as possible. I think it's that, that, that balance where you're not continually driving the director crazy in terms of what I tend to do is produce from around. In other words, you know, I like to try to cast the movie, you know, getting Jack Fisk as the production designer, you know, then you get the right costume designer and the right DP. And hopefully you could, you're all working to the same, the same end. I think, I think the hardest bit, is trying to be financially responsible to the studio and yet work with these filmmakers who are reaching for the moon. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. It's the final question then, uh, Daniel, and it's a little uh, look ahead into a possible future. So if you win and you're on stage at the BAFTAs, who is the one person who may or may not have been involved in this film's production, who you have to thank, because without whom you wouldn't be on that stage. My wife. <laughs> My wife. I mean, to, you, know, you know this. To make these films is all-consuming, and the amount of time you're away and them putting up with life going on while you're sitting in Oklahoma for a year is incredibly tough on the family. Uh, obviously, I'd thank the director and and my mother, <laughs> who's 92. <laughs> Fine. Uh, Daniel, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations again on Killers of the Flower Moon. Thanks for giving us the time. My thanks to Daniel Lupi and, of course, to you for listening. Follow the podcast to explore the rest of the nominees and much more in the months to come. Thanks, too, to the producers of this series, Matt Hill and Ollie Peart at Rethink Audio, with sound design by Peregrine Pez Andrews. I'm Alex Zane. This was a BAFTA production. I'll see you again as the countdown to the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024 continues. Listener.